Take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 8. In Genesis chapter 8, we have this incredible story, uh, never to be repeated, where Noah and his family are on the ark, and there's a flood all over the earth, and, um, and it's sort of a unique situation. We have this beautiful description of what went on sort of on the ark or around the world or uh, all of that that's, that's very unique uh, to that day, but leading up to that, uh, there was a situation in society in that day that uh, I, I think that we find very much repeated in our day. Now, the, the flood's not going to happen again. God has a promise about that. Uh, but we have some of the same ki- kind of characteristics going on in our society today that we had back then, and I want you to see if you can sort of pick up on what I mean. Back in Genesis 4, just a few chapters back, uh, at the end of that chapter, there's a, this guy by the name of Lamech. And uh, there's another guy in Genesis 5 by the same name, different guy. And, uh, but both these guys shared something in common, not just a name, but also uh, a certain philosophy of life applied in different ways. And the Genesis 4 Lamech, this guy decided he would take for himself two wives instead of just one, as was the tradition, as the standard that God set. He decided he would take two wives for himself, uh, for himself, and, and uh, you know, the question is why? Why would someone, why would a man take two wives when any, any sane man would only want one? Now, I'm sure that there's uh, some, some lady here that's thinking, well, that's, that's very rude, you know, um, saying that a, a sane man would only want, want one wife, but... To be fair, if I stood up here and I said that a man should have two wives, that same woman would complain about that too. The reality is that when I say that a sane man should only want or desire one wife, it's actually a compliment, ladies, um, because of this very fact. God made you to be all that your husband needs. Okay? And so if, if... your husband, for some reason, starts thinking that he can get his needs satisfied by someone other than you. Just please know, ladies, that he has lost his mind. And um, you, the fact is that you are perfect for your husband, and you have my permission to tell him that early and often. He might need to be reminded of that. And so men... Uh, There is one person that can provide for your physical needs, and it is your wife. In fact, that same wife can provide you with children. And so, it's very easy to see that one wife is all that a man needs. But this Genesis 4 Lamech, this guy, this character, he decided to take two wives, and he was emblematic of a society that uh, was growing up at the same time that he was growing up, that began to think this way, as is evidenced by him taking two wives, that he wanted the benefits of physical intimacy without the responsibility. The responsibility that comes with physical intimacy is children, parenting, raising children, not just having children, not just having offspring, but raising children. And so this uh, this coin, if you will, has two sides to it. Benefits is on one, and responsibility is always on the opposite side of that coin uh, of the benefits. And so when we have a society, when we have a whole bunch of people in society today that have the same idea that he does, and you might say, well, I look around, I don't see a bunch of people practicing 
polygamy, you know, or bigamy or anything like that. No, it hasn't got to that yet. But when you have a whole bunch of people in society that have this idea that they want the pleasures of physical intimacy without the responsibility that God has created to come with that, what you end up with is a society that is filled with all kinds of problems. STDs, birth control, abortion, fatherlessness, and even homosexuality. In fact, I would say that homosexuality is the inevitable outcome of a society that says, I want sex without kids. Why? Because you can't have kids practicing homosexuality. It is a biological impossibility. And so what all of these, these problems in society have in common is this common thread of wanting to have pleasure, wanting to have benefits without responsibility, specifically the benefits of physical intimacy without the responsibility of having to raise children. And then we come across this guy in Genesis chapter 5, at the end of that chapter, his name also is Lamech. Different guy, he had the same philosophy, although applied in a different way. Lamech had a son, and his son would be part of the first generation of people that would have been born after Adam, the first man, died. And we know what came with Adam when Adam and Eve sinned. There was a curse that God put on the ground. And so this Lamech, Genesis 5 Lamech, thought to himself, well, good, now that Adam's dead, and now that this generation has come along, I'm going to name my son Rest. Because this generation will no longer be under the curse. This Lamech thought that since Adam died, the curse of God on the ground died with him, but he was wrong. Nevertheless, he named his son Rest, and the Hebrew word for rest is Noah. And so this man, Noah, came along, and the society that Noah was raised in, by the way, was not the last society that thought, I want economic benefits without having to work for them. In fact, we have today an entire society filled with an ever-growing number of people who want economic benefits without having to work for them. I want free transportation. I want free housing. I want free food, even. But what people fail to understand is that God has built into the very fabric of all of his creation something called self-provision. Think about this. Elephants have to transport themselves to the water by walking. The water does not just leap up into, its, into their mouths. The water simply doesn't appear wherever the elephants are. Birds have to build their own housing. It's called a nest. Nests don't naturally appear in the trees. But birds have to work to build their own home. Sharks have to hunt for food. Very few fish, I believe, just simply jump into the shark's mouth whenever the shark gets hungry. And if all of creation has to work for its transportation and its housing and its food, why do we think as humans we would be 
any different. The reality is that we have an entire generation of people that expect and even demand benefits to come their way without having to work for it. Proverbs 26.15 says that the slacker buries his hand in the bowl, but he's too weary to even bring it up to his mouth. Someone might say, well, that's, that's Old Testament. Doesn't the New Testament say something different? Well, let's find out. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we read this. In fact, while we were with you, this is Paul writing to the church of Thessalonica. He said, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that many, that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busy bodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and... Provide for themselves. This is what God has built into the fabric of his creation. Now, when you have a society filled with people, more and more people all the time, who think that they should not have to work for anything, but just have things to be given to them, what do you think the fruit of that society might turn out to be? Crime, for one. I mean... If thieves tell us anything, they tell us that their life story, their philosophy is, I want something for nothing. And they're thieves. Now, I have a question for you. I don't ask you to, uh, uh, to show by a survey of hands very often, but I do want to do that today. How many of you intentionally do not lock your front door every evening? Please raise your hand. You do not lock your front door. All right. That's amazing to me. We have very few people, though, that are like that. Now, uh, y'all live a little bit out in the country, don't you? There you go. A little bit out in the country. Why? Why do all the rest of us lock our doors? Because we have a society that is filled with people who want something for nothing, that something that they may want may be in our own house. There was a time, a society, not too many generations ago, where very few people ever locked their doors or even had doors with locks on it. When you have a society like that, you might believe that crime would become rampant, gambling would become rampant. I want something for nothing or for very little. A desire for fame and fortune. You might even have a society that is given over to inflation. And you might say, well, what's inflation have to do with it? Well, inflation simply means this, that we keep electing politicians who will give us what? Something for nothing. And when a society keeps electing people who will promise greater and greater things, something for nothing, and then there's not enough money to pay for it, how do they pay for it? Print the money. And we're left with inflation. By the way, in the 5th century B.C., there was a leader of the Greek city-state of Athens. His name was Pericles. And Pericles was a, a very famous politician at the time. He wanted to become very popular among the people. He wanted to increase his popularity. And so he decided that he would give the people of Athens large sums of money. And everyone would like him. But the problem was he didn't have enough money, or at least he didn't want to give away his own money, and so he turned to his friend, who was a philosopher, an older man, 
by the name of Demonides. And he said, what should I do? And Demonides said, well, simply give them presents from their own property. And they'll love you for it. There's not a new philosophy that's under the sun these days. It's been going on for a long time. Benefits without responsibility. But anytime you have benefits without responsibility, there's always a cost, and the cost is higher than you ever want to pay. And the people of Noah's day found that out too late. By the time of Noah's day, the philosophy of Genesis chapter 4 Lamech and the Genesis chapter 5 Lamech came to a head, and the fruition looked like this. In Genesis chapter 6, we read, Now the earth was corrupt and the sight of God. And the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. All of mankind had become irresponsible, had become corrupt, and had even become violent, but Noah remained faithful to God. So what did God do? We, knew what, we know what God did. God told Noah to build an ark. Noah followed his instructions to a T. It took him quite a while. And at the right time, God sent animals to Noah, to the ark, and then God sent a worldwide flood that cleansed the whole ark. And now, in Genesis chapter 8, Noah and his family and at least two of every creature that crawled upon the land or walked upon the land and flew in the air are on the ark. And this is what we read in Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. It says, God, it says But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. What does that mean, God remembered Noah? Did God forget? I mean, God creates this incredible flood, wiping everyone out, and then God wakes up one day, oh my goodness, I forgot all about Noah. Is that what happened? No. God doesn't forget like you and me, okay? You and I forget things, but God does not. Not like that. When the Bible talks about God remembering something or remembering somebody, it's talking about he is ready to activate his covenant that he promised before. God is ready to show mercy. God is ready to move in Noah's life. And so that's what it means there. In fact, in, in Exodus chapter 2, we have this uh, great story of uh, later where the Israelites are in Egypt, and they're enslaved in Egypt, and they're crying out to God, and and they want mercy from God, and, and there doesn't seem to be any mercy coming. And this is what we read in Genesis, or Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. We have a similar phrase in Genesis chapter 30. You have this lady, Rachel. She can't have any kids. It's a big deal back then. And so she's barren. She cries out to the Lord. And in Genesis chapter 30, verse 22, we read, Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. And so God remembers us from time to time at the exact time that he wants 
to pour out his blessings and fulfill his promises to us. By the way, repeatedly throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, we are told to remember the Lord himself as well. And so we read in Genesis chapter 8, as that verse continues, And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided, and the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. Now what's going on here is that we have a description here of what God is doing in order to help the waters decrease on the earth. But there's something else going on that you may not have caught on to just yet. What's really going on in Genesis chapter 8 is that God, having cleansed the world, is now, in a sense, recreating the world. Just like God did in Genesis chapter 1, where God created the world, now we have a recreation of this world. Back in Genesis chapter 1, on day 1, which uh, begins really in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1, we read, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And do you see the parallelism between day one of creation week and Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 and 2? The earth is mentioned in both places. It says that the Spirit of God was, on, was moving on day one of creation week. The word spirit and the word wind are the same word in Hebrew. It's the word ruach. And so the Spirit of God was moving. You have the mention of the deep. You have the mention of the waters. We're beginning to see some parallelism between Genesis 8 and Genesis 1. And it teaches us a very important lesson that we'll get to. And then on day two of Genesis chapter 1, it says God made the expanse and separated the waters which were uh, below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. Again, we have this parallel, parallelism between the heaven and the sky. Then we read in Genesis chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, And the waters receded steadily from the earth. And at the time of 150 days, the water decreased. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. On day three, we have this parallelism again. God said, back in Genesis 1, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. We have the same kinds of language now in Noah's day. And then in verse 6 of chapter 8, we read, And then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened up the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. And then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. Question, why, why a raven? Why did, God, why did Noah send out a raven? And some theologians said, well, ravens are ceremonially unclean. And, and others have said, well, ravens are both carnivorous and herbivorous. And they'll eat whatever they can see. And maybe they sort of, the raven sort of landed on some carcasses floating on the water. 
And those are, I guess, uh, true things about ravens, but it's not really much of an explanation. And then someone said, well, why did he send out a dove? And of course, you know, someone would say, well, the dove represents the Holy Spirit because in Jesus' day, when Jesus was baptized afterwards, the Holy Spirit came upon him, descended upon him like a dove. And again, uh, that, that may be true, and, and, uh, and someone then uh, made a comment, well, if the Holy Spirit is represented by the dove, then the raven really represents Satan. And so Noah let Satan out upon the earth. And I'm, I'm thinking, I don't really know if that explanation flies um, with the dove and the, and the raven. Because it seems like Genesis, when the book of Genesis wants to talk about the Spirit of God, it uses language such as the Spirit of God. And so uh, I'm not sure why a dove and a raven were both sent out. But then, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 9, we read this, Then God said, and this is day 5, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds above the earth uh, fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And now if you're really paying attention, someone might say, well, What happened to day 4? You know, you, you went through day one, day two, day three of creation week, and then skipped day four and went to day five. Why, why skip day four? Well, there's not a parallel between uh, day four and Genesis 8. Why? What happened on day four? The sun, moon, and the stars were created on day four. And, as far as we can tell, the flood of Noah's day didn't reach that high. And so day four has no parallelism there. But day five does. Well, back to Genesis chapter 8, verse 9. But the dove found no, evening, no resting place for the sole of her foot, for she returned to him from the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. Why does verse 9 go to so much trouble talking about how Noah brought the dove back into the ark? Took the dove by the hand. Why didn't it just say, well, the dove came back? Well... Uh, it may not be the most theologically meaningful reason, but I think it took, he took the dove by the hand because he was looking for dirt on the foot. In fact, it says there was no resting place for the sole of her foot earlier in that verse. And then in verse 10 we read, So he waited another seven days and again sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf, so Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. The olive leaf told Noah something very important. That not only did the water decrease, but the earth is producing vegetation again. It's, it's, uh, it's inhabitable. Or it's, it should be habitable, I should say. Genesis chapter 8, verse 12. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Now, Noah has learned that if the dove did not return, the dove can survive on its own. And if the dove can survive on its own, so can the rest of the inhabitants of the ark. And then in the next verse we read, Now it came about in the 600th and first year, in the first month of the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. Without getting into all the calculations, one year has passed. It's a brand new year, indicating again 
a brand new creation. And Noah looked, he removed the covering of the ark, and finally he could see the land instead of just the sky. And he saw that the surface of the ground was dried up. Then in verse 14, in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. He looked out and apparently all of the temporary lakes and puddles were dried up, making it safe to disembark. Is Noah going to disembark at this point? Not yet. Why not? We read why in the next verse. This is a very important lesson for you and me. Then God spoke. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. You know, a whole year had passed. And for a whole year, there's no indication that God spoke to Noah. God's previous command, build the ark and enter it, that was enough. And that's all Noah had to do. All Noah had to do was obey. And as John Calvin famously said about this verse, Noah did not move a foot out of his sepulcher without the command of God. You know, even though the dove came back with an olive branch, and even though he sent out the dove again and it never came back, and even though Noah could see with his own eyes that the land was dry, Noah did not move until God told him to. Maybe a very important lesson for someone here today. And then in Genesis chapter 8, verse 17, we read, Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Another parallel with day six. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. I hope that you can see that what we have in Genesis 8 parallels God's original creation of Genesis 1. And here's the lesson for us today. God is the God of the second chance. God gave humanity a second chance with the flood, and with the ark. And the same God rules your life today. He is the God of the second chance. God will rescue the faithful. God will honor those who trust Him. God does not promise you that the troubles of this world will not affect you. But God does promise to be your protector and your provider. You know, when it looks like your life is absolutely devastated, God can provide you with a second chance. And so Noah and his family begin a brand new life. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 18, we read, so Noah went out 
and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by their families from the ark. I'm reminded of Proverbs chapter 12, verse 13, which says, A righteous person escapes from trouble. We read in the next verse, that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and, off- and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Noah made a sacrifice to the Lord. And Noah's sacrifice to the Lord is a reminder to us that as sinners we need a mediator between us and God. God is too holy to simply treat our sin as if it has no consequence. Sin separates us from God. And what Noah did by making those sacrifices on the altar, he was actually producing what we might call a shadow of something much more real that truly saved Noah's life And truly saves us as well if we believe. And it is the sacrifice of God the Son on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. The Bible says that the blood of bulls and goats cannot pay for your sins. Only a human sacrifice can do that. Only a sacrifice of a person can pay for a person's sin. And that's what Jesus did on the cross when he died on the cross for you and me. Your sin separates you from God, but God has provided a way for you and me to be reunited with him through Jesus Christ. We read in verse 21, The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Verse 22. And I think this is incredible. God produces a poem. God is a poet. He produces this beautiful, simple poem. And God says, while the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. What a great promise we have from God. If these things that God has produced will not cease, neither will his mercy for us, neither will his forgiveness and his love. If you were to ask me today, how can I have my sins forgiven? How can I make sure that I'm right with God and not judged by Him? I would tell you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. The Bible says, it should be Romans chapter 10, verse 13, whoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a great promise from God. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved.